Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is the Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve. Welcome back. <laughs> well, thanks. And once again, welcome back to you, too. Yes. Welcome back to both of us. So things are going very well. I have been on a podcast tear recently. I was... <laughs> you really have. I was a guest on the Pod Dylan podcast, and I highly recommend that you go over to Pod Dylan and check out my recent episode where I was a guest and we discussed the Bob Dylan song, Restless Farewell. I went ahead and put out, finally, for the first time since we've been putting this podcast out there, I went ahead and recorded a new episode of the Secrets of Story podcast with my co-host James Kennedy and the returning special guest Jonathan Oxier, and that's uh, sort of a two-parter. By the time this episode posts, I may have posted yet another episode of Secrets of Story podcast. By all means, feel free to check those out. And hey, if you want to come down and do bar trivia in Evanston, Illinois at Bob's Pizza on Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock, you can hear my voice yet more. I am, I'm as someone who has never been a big fan of my own voice, I apparently <laughs> have decided that people want to hear me constantly all the time. So here I am. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're just inflicting yourself upon all of us. I am. So how have you, how have you been, Steve? Uh, I have been doing fine. My lovely spouse is visiting some of her old college friends at a mountain getaway uh, at the moment. And my daughter is with her nana for the next couple weeks. So I am by myself here at the moment. So I just got done editing the previous episode just moments ago. <laughs> and yeah, that, that, that's about it for me. You know, oh, okay, so here's a thought. You can yes. That down a little bit. So uh, I, when we last recorded the previous episode, I had just that moment finished the season finale of Loki, Loki season one. Yes. And you asked me what I thought of it. I was a little bit, you know, I, I basically didn't give you much reaction. I think that uh, upon more reflection, I think that I found that as an episode of television, I found it kind of underwhelming, but it was really, in many ways, just exposition for the next decade of Marvel movies. <laughs> yes. So I am in the middle of watching the finale right now. I am okay. I am, I am halfway through the finale and was going to finish it tonight. So I was very happy, though, in episode five that the Thanos copter showed up, which we have... <laughs> We have mentioned previously on this podcast, but yes. And, and so, so did, what was the other thing people were pointing at? There was some other ridiculous thing that, well, besides Frog Thor, which does show up at one point. I don't um, remember that. When did Frog Thor show up? It was when the camera was panning down through the ground to, to the layer below. Yes. Okay. There's a little, there's a little specimen jar in which frog thor is leaping trying to get out and it's marked with the uh the label on the outside is the number on it is the same as the issue number where frog thor first appeared it's like 365 or something like that That's and awesome. so it's yes it's, it's a very deliberate shout out no there was some other wrecked piece of something that people pointed out that i had not seen oh i'm gonna have to look it up but yeah <laughs> so i i can't believe you didn't see frog well granted i did have a uh a, a friend of mine post saying oh at this second mark you know make sure to keep your eyes open for a blink or you'll miss it cameo <laughs> that's awesome yeah. okay well let's go ahead and get to the comics we're talking about tonight we've got five comics we're already not getting to them very quickly 
And we've <laughs> we've never managed to successfully cram five comics into one episode before. The one time we tried to do it, we ended up breaking that episode in two. Tonight, we're going to try to do it. Let's go ahead and try to do it. Let's go ahead and get started with Fantastic Four number eight. So this issue introduces the Puppet Master and his daughter, Alicia. We have a beautiful cover where the Puppet Master is controlling the Fantastic Four as if they're marionettes. He is saying, oh, baby, my puppets, for your will is my will. You shall never escape your new master. Ben is, of course, being forced to attack the others. He says, I can't help myself. The Puppet Master is making me attack the others. And Reed is going, don't thing. We mustn't let him control us. And it says, prisoner of the Puppet Master. Yes. And it just looks like a, you know, classic little marionette stage there that they are all on. Uh, And he certainly, uh, the Puppet Master certainly gets fancy with his little miniatures and sets. These days, he would just be playing Warhammer 40k, right? Yes. (laughs) Picture him spending all day with little paintbrushes. Um, (laughs) Exactly. So we begin with a classic Fantastic Four situation where Ben Grimm, the thing, comes home and finds Reed working on a project and demands to know what it is. And of course, this is the classic misunderstanding. Reed's like, no, 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 don't let him in here. And then Sue and Johnny try to keep Ben out. And then once they realize, hey, we should just explain to Ben what's going on, it's too late. And Ben is saying, I'm cutting out of this combo. As of now, the Fantastic Four can go to blazes for all I care. Of course, they were working on a way to cure him. They should have just told him that. And instead, you've got a bunch of empty well, conflict. It was supposed to be like a surprise party. I mean, yeah, right? Basically. That, yeah. Right. And, and and I mean, you love surprise parties, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm famous for not loving them. I mean, I think it's the old they didn't want to get his hopes up thing. But yeah. instead, they just caused a big fight. Sue follows Ben outside. There's a funny page. People are picking on Ben for talking to someone who's not there. And then Sue kicks them. Ben wraps a lamppost around one of them. But then they see that somebody is climbing a bridge intending to jump off, and they try to save him. Sue alerts Reed and Johnny to the fact this is going on. Torch saves him. Then we cut to the Puppet Master. Yeah, so, so the Puppet Master, one of the things I have to say is, is there any reason he had to have such a minutely detailed model of, what is that, the Manhattan Bridge? Um, you know, in order to make this whole thing work. Because <laughs> that is a minutely detailed model he has there. Yeah, including every single car on it. Yes, right. he has built a, a very detailed model of this guy who has climbed up and is going to go off, and the torch saves him, and then the puppet master touches his little model to push the guy off, and it burns his finger, so he knows that the human torch has saved him. And he says, only one living creature could have done this. It means the human torch will be the puppet master's next victim. Very indirectly, though. So uh, <laughs> we then, but then the puppet master's daughter, Alicia Masters, comes in the room and says, Father, I heard you cry out. What is wrong? I keep waiting till we get to a week where we don't introduce any major characters. And this is not it, because here we have (laughs) Alicia Masters as a major character being introduced. So then the Puppet Master decides, well, he suddenly decides he hates the Human Torch, which means he needs to kidnap the thing, presumably to fight the Human Torch. (laughs) He uses his radioactive clay. It is explained many years later where this radioactive clay comes from. It is unexplained here that he has got some radioactive clay. So he carves a model of Ben Grimm. He has Ben Grimm come and join him. Sue cleverly follows while invisible, but then Alicia sort of shades of daredevil here. Alicia says, father, there are two strangers here. I can hear another heartbeat. I can hear another's breathing. So we've got her elevated senses. 
let, let, let me uh, just point out here that when you were talking about the radioactive clay, he clearly has it inside some sort of presumably lead or otherwise heavy metal containment box to keep the radiation out. He's wearing what looks like a radiation suit as he cuts off a chunk of the clay and starts carving it. Seems to still be in that while he's carving it. But then when he's done, he still just has a glove on and isn't really worrying about it so much. But then later, all of his things are just sort of hanging up in the room. So, you know, you'd think he's getting radiation coming from all of these different things on him. Hey, at, uh, least, at least he seemed to be aware that there was a danger of radiation, which put him far and above all the other Marvel characters we've met so far. Fair. So then he realizes Sue is in the room. He fills the room with ether. So <laughs> because then... he's just got an ether, <laughs> some kind of ether device in the wall. Like, oh, hit the button for ether. <laughs> <laughs> so then Sue, he then knocks out Sue and quickly realizes, wait just a second. She looks remarkably like you, Alicia. In fact, that gives me an idea. Fashioning a uniform like hers and a blonde wig for you or child's play for the puppet master. So then he puts, uh, he realizes he puts a blonde wig on Alicia. She will be identical to Sue, which basically is Stan not giving much credit to Jack's drawing ability. Stan is going like, <laughs> Stan is going like, oh, Jack, we know that if you put a wig on one of your female characters, then she would be identical to your other female characters because you're not putting much detail into women's faces. Well, he, he, he's not the only one. There's going to be a Spider-Man issue many months from now where Betty Brant and Liz Allen are, are like right on top of each other. And it looked like he drew the face in the background and then took a photo stat of it and put it in the foreground and then just drew different hair on it. <laughs> and so this is not uncommon. And lots of comic book artists do this. And part of it is that, you know, you're just having to crank out so much art on a give on a daily basis you're gonna have sort of a default heroic male face and a default heroic female face that you go with but yes also one thing though that i was realizing is when we said that the ben having a thing for sue thing did reappear a few issues after issue one i forget if it was issue three or what but at this point they're making it clear that alicia looks very much like sue and Ben is going to fall in love with Alicia. Yeah, that's sort of what becomes of his crush on Sue, I guess, is that he, he, the love of his life is someone who looks an awful lot like Sue. So then he sends the thing to attack the Fantastic Four, along with Alicia pretending to be Sue. Ben crashes through Reed's chemicals, and it turns out it works. He becomes my face. It's it's human again. I'm Ben Grimm again. I'm me. It says, with the change in Ben Grimm, the power of the puppet master ends and the spell is over. And then Alicia decides that the jig is up. So she then says, please, somebody tell me, where am I? Who are you? And then Reed, to his credit, does at this point realize this is not his girlfriend. And he says, that girl, <laughs> she isn't Sue, but who? And it says, I remember now. She's the puppet master's stepdaughter. The poor kid's blind. And so then she instantly starts feeling Ben's face, which is her form of affection, and then Ben suddenly becomes the thing again, and right away she likes the thing more. She says, your voice, you are the strong, kindly one, but you seem different now. No, wait, I was mistaken. It is you. It is the same wonderful man. And Ben thinks, I'm back to being the thing again. It must have been the chemical stuff. It probably only works when it's on me, but when it dries off, I get back to normal. But the clinker is, she likes me better as the thing. So we've got a classic situation here, which is going to sustain 50 years of comics, kind of saying, yes. maybe not 50 years, at least 20 years of comics, where she ironically, well, so on the one hand, he thinks it only makes sense that only a blind woman can love him, but she has to constantly convince him that she really does love him and that she actually can sense how he looks and likes him better is the thing. 
but yes. he is constantly going to be worried about this. So then they go, they all rush back to the puppet master's place. The puppet master attacks him with a gigantic puppet, which is a gigantic <laughs> evil robot type thing. The so, puppet so master. One, one of the things that I've noticed here, and I'd kind of forgotten about this, is the whole thing about what does puppet master mean gets really confusing here in various points. Because on one hand, it's basically like little voodoo dolls where you can control other living beings. But on the other hand, there are these big sort of contraptions that he makes that, you know, are also his puppets. Uh, you know, it's They're a little bit unclear on all this. Well, stuff. And then he's got a flying horse puppet that yes, he can well. actually fly away on, <laughs> which is a rather impressive. They do, to be fair, they do have him say, even you cannot catch my winged flying horse, my greatest puppet of all. Like, yeah, that's a hell of a puppet, dude. Right. So well, then, and, and he does say that it's jet powered in like two two panels later, which also just like, is that a, really a puppet then? <laughs> <laughs> it's one hell of a mean? puppet. Yes. So then he gets away with Sue, but then Sue is rescued. But then meanwhile, there's this whole other thing where he has caused all of the prisoners in a prison to escape. The Fantastic Four have to go put down the prison riot, have to go rescue the warden. They have a beautiful fight scene here. They then finally, Alicia is somewhere. And then the puppet master comes in the room. They're in the room with her. He's got a puppet of himself as a king. And imagines how he will take over the world. But then she fights him over it. It The puppet of him as a king falls to the ground. He then trips over her and falls out the window to seemingly his death. Then the Fantastic Four come in the room. Spoiler alert. He is not dead. He is not dead. Seconds later, the Fantastic Four bursts into the apartment to find the window. He fell through the window. We saw him down below. Don't cry, Alicia. Everything will be okay now, kid. I swear it. I go, what happened, Reed? What made the puppet master fall? I wonder if we'll ever really know. And then we see that puppet of him fell and presumably the puppet master fell because his own puppet fell which sort of feels like one of like the ending of one of the old pre-superhero marvel comics you know so it does twilight twilight zone ending sort of thing you'll often have it's like you know when i mentioned that there was that other story that did not get folded in the marvel universe about the man in the beehive that's very much like the ending of that where the guy's like oh it was all just hypnosis but wait what's this my feet could that be a miniature gun no <laughs> exactly it's uh yeah no but it's it's good it's good ending so yeah so we've got the introduction of alicia she will be a major character i don't think it's ever mentioned again that alicia is almost identical to sue i don't think that ever comes up yeah. again no. <laughs> i think that once you got comic artists who were putting more detail into girls faces they were actually differentiating their faces oh man that just okay so years later when we were collecting comics as in our teens when the thing had left the planet for a while. He wasn't around. He was replaced in the Fantastic Four by She-Hulk. Johnny and Alicia, while Ben is gone and no one knows when he's going to get back, they strike up a relationship. Right. So if Alicia looks just like Johnny's (laughs) sister. Yes. Good point. (laughs) Like, ooh, that just got weird. Yeah. And then that whole storyline gets crazy over the course of the next couple of writers as the status quo is, of course, eventually restored. But I, you know, I think the Puppet Master looks great. He sort of looks like a demented ventriloquist dummy himself. He is a creepy character. One can see why they brought him back, even though they had seemingly killed him off here. They get a lot of use out of Lisa over the years. They get a lot of use out of the Puppet Master. I think this is a good issue for contributing to the Fantastic Four mythos. So one thing that we get a couple of examples of this month is Jack Kirby using somewhat grotesque faces for his villains. Uh, We're going to see this too with the wizard. 
And as time goes on, even Kirby himself, but to an even greater degree, other artists can have a hard time figuring out what to do with these grotesque caricatures. So the Puppet Master, his look will really vary greatly over time. Just a few years later, not even like in the, you know, 70s or 80s, but uh, just a few years later when Gene Colan is drawing him in some Submariner books, he looks completely different. I mean, basically, he's still bald, but that's the only thing that's that's the same. It just looks utterly different. And, you know, we're going to see the wizard a little bit later uh, in this episode, and he looks this distended, grotesque face with this scraggly-looking little goatee. And uh, even Kirby doesn't really quite keep up that level of odd caricature on him. But so yeah, this is something that that uh, Kirby does more in the early days, and it seems to decrease over time. Um, and yeah, different artists have different ways of handling this. Uh, I did also notice that once again, we see that the torch flames hot enough to basically vaporize rock, and right. then come up and just grab a guy and rescue him while he's hot enough to vaporize rock. So, you know, it's science. It's science. So, all right, let's go ahead and move on to Incredible Hulk number four. Incredible Hulk was off last month. He's got a bi-monthly book, so he's back this month. And this is, but every, <laughs> every, every issue of the Hulk that we've seen so far has had a lot crammed in and a lot of story, but this is the first book where they're officially announcing this is two separate stories, two feature-length Hulk thrillers in this issue, The Monster and the Machine and Mongoo Gladiator from Space. Fantasy as you like it. Again, using that phrase oddly. So we begin with just, this first story is sort of all over the map. We begin (laughs) with Rick is seemingly experimenting on the Hulk with a elaborate machinery. He is trying to pull something off. It's some some beautiful Kirby tech too. I mean, it's just classic Kirby high-tech device that the the Hulk has uh, arrayed, arrayed above him here. Really beautiful. Presumably, Bruce Banner has set up this machinery and then had Rick operate it. Then we cut to Betty, who is remembering the origin of the Hulk. So then we cut to General Thunderbolt Ross. He has a jet-powered artificial copy of the Hulk that he is shooting ice bombs at just for fun. (laughs) Okay, so we had said, we need to stop saying these things are never mentioned again. Because... We then cut back to Rick and the Hulk. The Hulk is still controlled by Rick, something I didn't think would come up again. And then it says, then a sudden command from his young master, the mightiest living thing on earth, makes a fantastic leap powered by muscles so powerful that he seems to be flying. So they're still not being very clear as to whether or not he's actually supposed to be flying or just seems to be flying. Okay, so here's, here's my take on this, is it looks to me like... Kirby had decided that the Hulk could fly because there are multiple panels in this. But I think that when we were talking about the previous issue, I was saying there are several panels where it looks like he's flying. There was like two. However, what I was remembering is that there are more panels in this issue where he is clearly flying. Uh, the bottom of page six, the Hulk's flying. I mean, look he's at those doing panels. Some swooping. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, I can, I feel like if you just deleted the swoop marks, he wouldn't be. Wait out the swoop marks, and then these are perfectly panels <laughs> where he is not flying. But they're there, so he is flying, even though, according to the text, he just seems to be flying, which would yes. make more sense for the character. Then the Hulk interrupts a science fiction movie set. He escapes again. He goes to the craft services and eats some food. And is it just me, or is that a big bucket of beans? <laughs> I don't know. 
So yeah. there, there's a running joke later in the 70s when the Hulk is part of a superhero group called the Defenders, where uh, it's just an ongoing running joke about the Hulk loving to eat beans. And so this looks like almost his first introduction to beans. So once again, the text seems to imply he is just jumping. It says, on and on, his prodigious leap carries him into the very heart of the metropolis where a faint faraway thought reaches his clouded brain. So then Rick has been now, taken now, by what, the army. What metropolis is this? They don't say. No. I, I, I think it would have to be L.A., right? I mean, they're in the Southwest. And, you know, what Southwestern city would have skyscrapers like this? I don't know. Phoenix? Yeah. I don't know. So then the Hulk rescues Rick. It looks very much like he's flying, even though the text says he's not. They go back to the thing. And it's so funny that these first six issues of the Hulk's short-lived series, they prefigure everything that would ever happen to the Hulk. Because now Bruce experiments on the Hulk, sets up an experiment, then becomes the Hulk. And now for the first time, we have the Hulk with Bruce Banner's intelligence. They would get a lot of stories out of later, but I had forgotten it happened so early. The Hulk then saves a family from a burning building. They, of course, then instantly try to shoot at him and kill him, not recognizing that he just saved them from a burning building. They take off, and that's pretty much the end of this first story. So this first story is all over the map, but it sets out a lot of stuff that will come up later. A couple other things I want to point out uh, along the way in here. One is on the top of page nine, first panel on page nine, there is no way you're going to tell me that Kirby didn't intend for the Hulk to be flying right there. Like yeah. that, that, that's one where you could not even say just erase the erase the motion lines. I think that Kirby had decided that the Hulk could fly and Stan was like, uh, okay, I guess maybe this, and then got to this issue and it's just like, nope, nope, we're just, we're, we're saying something else is happening. I'm just saying, despite the evidence of your eyes, the Hulk is not actually flying because that would be dumb. And then the other thing I want to point out is that uh, on page 10, those panels in the middle, apparently one thing that this uh, new gamma ray powered transition can do is when he turns from Hulk to Banner, it parts his hair. <laughs> yes. Parts of Sarah differently. Although so, at least his at least his glasses don't miraculously just appear on his face, as happens sometimes in future issues. And so, then also the panel on page eleven, uh, third panel on fourth panel, I should say, on page eleven, uh, where he's you see a shot from outside of the room when he's activating the gamma ray. That is just a gorgeous panel. I just want to point that out. I really is. love that. Okay, anyway, that's it for me. Let's go on to story number two. So then story number two is the Gladiator from Outer Space. Now, you're going to see certain recurring themes this week. So this is the first story of a certain theme. We've got three wonderful panels of a landing gear eye view of a rocket ship landing in a park, seemingly in Central Park or something like that. And a giant comes out of the alien spaceship and he says, I am Mangu. And now, now let, let, let me interrupt for a second here and just point out that on page two, panel five, so the uh, middle row panel on the right, could you describe the cop in that panel? Um, okay, in my copy on Marvel Unlimited, the cop is black. <laughs> oh, and, really? And, and, and I went back and looked at some of those scans that I had from you, and in the Marvel chronology version, these pages had been scanned from a reprint where he is also black. Okay. However, I, I was I was able to find another ver- another version of the scans that was from the original comics, and he is not black. He is not black. I'm looking at this scan of the original comic, and it's funny. He's got a little bit of a 
wider nose. Yep. So I can see why somebody later decided to, hey, let's make that guy black. And it's funny, Dicko who would, has, who would have been the first black person in the entire Marvel universe. Apparently, at this point, black people do not exist in the Marvel universe yet. They will. We will get a couple of them pop up. There's going to be a soldier or air force or airman that uh, Captain America is going to rescue in a couple of years, and we're also going to have Gabe from the Howling Commandos. But then, other than those two. It will take until it's either 65 or 60. I think it's 65. Suddenly, there are black people in New York. <laughs> well, Dicko, Dicko is starts pretty early. Dicko decides there are definitely going to be black people in Spider-Man. And he starts drawing and inking them in a way where they're clearly black. And they are just normal professional people, like they're cops and they're, they're other people doing things. And he definitely sort of takes it upon himself. Kirby never really does. Kirby leaves it up to the colorist to determine if any of these people are the races. And obviously when they're reprinting this, they're like, hey, that's a character who could conceivably be black. Let's go ahead and make him black. Unlike when Dicko is making it very clear. But of course, you know, the, one of the great ironies of these earlier comics is they're like, all right, we really ought to add a black character to one of these comics. I know, let's add the black character to a World War II battalion. And it's right. like, well, okay, that's the one place where there wouldn't be a black <laughs> character because the army was strictly segregated at the time. Well, you could very easily add a black member to the Avengers or the Fantastic Four because those are not segregated institutions. But right. they, they, the only place for the first several years of Marvel history that they add a black character is to the World War II battalion where you absolutely would not have found any black characters. Okay, so let's go back to Mongu. All right, so let's go back to the issue. He comes out, he says, I am Mongu. I want to fight your greatest champion. I need to fight someone who can wield a two-ton axe like me. Well, actually, he says, show me a champion who can weld a two-ton axe <laughs> like me. But there's there's a number of little so, so-called typos in this month. Uh, like, I've noticed about half a dozen different little things like that. Uh, and the issues we're talking about. This yes, month. clearly a typo. It's supposed to be wield a two-ton X. So then they're like, well, clearly this has to be the Hulk. He's the only person on Earth who can wield a two-ton X. He goes to fight them on a mesa in the middle of the desert. But then the Hulk, who of course has Bruce Banner's intelligence now, cleverly figures his way out of the situation. He grabs the X away and he says, something's fishy about all this. Give me that club. Just like I figured, nothing but cardboard and cork. The whole thing's a phony. Then a whole bunch of communist soldiers come out of the ship and it reveals that Mongu is actually a giant exoskeleton, and inside is a Soviet soldier named Boris Monguski. And my real mission, <laughs> my my true name is Boris Monguski, and my real mission is to capture you as I have done. But there's one thing he didn't count on, and that is that the Hulk would beat everybody up. So the Hulk... <laughs> then, who, who could have foreseen that? Who could have foreseen that? <laughs> the one flaw in their plan is that the Hulk would try to beat everybody up. And uh, they manage to, uh, and then it you know, becomes a big fight. And they, they, uh, what do they actually do with the? <laughs> I, it's not clear to me what happens to the communists here. He takes all of their belts off. He then s- connects them together into one giant strap, straps them all together in a bundle like cordwood. And then leaps up to the Soviet Huey, or, you know, the double-bladed helicopter that's up there, and attaches them to the skids or whatever, somehow attaches it to that thing, and then jumps back down. And then what happens to them? I, I, I think that the helicopter escapes the United States. 
Okay, so he, the Hulk basically uh, engineers the escape of all of these communists from America. <laughs> and well, General Thunderbolt Royals was right. He's a spy. He is a spy. So then the police come along and they find the Mangu exosuit. They say, whatever the Hulk planned to accomplish by this phony scheme, it sure backfired. He didn't fool anybody. And then they say in the newspaper, battle with Space Gladiator rigged by Hulk. Public taken in by brazen hoax. I'll trap the Hulk yet, swears General Ross. So as with every Marvel story, the public turns against the Hulk in the end, even though he saved him. But he only kind of saved him because it looks like he helped all the communists escape. It's very unclear. <laughs> the spaceship is supposed is specified as being a camouflaged MiG. And if I'm not mistaken, a MiG is a fighter jet, right? Right. But there are at least a dozen Soviet soldiers who are coming out of this thing. I think a MiG was the only Soviet plane name that Stan Lee knew. Yes, uh, uh, or maybe the only one that he figured that his readers would know. So, arguments about whether the Hulk can fly still persist, and um, with clear, with as I say, it seems clear to me, Kirby thinks he does, Stan thinks he doesn't. Yeah, um, I think you're right. <laughs> and, you know, once again, commies and aliens in one story. Yes, well, you think it's an alien story, and it turns out to be a commie story. Yes. So our first issue of the Hulk was commies. Our second issue was aliens, and they are they are going back and forth. And so here we get some whiplash as we go back and forth between aliens and commies within one issue. I think one notable thing about Hulk number four is that Larry Lieber didn't script it. So Lee is having his brother Larry Lieber script the minor books, but he considers Hulk to be a major book. He is scripting this himself. The Hulk is going to end up getting canceled in two issues, but he's still pretty committed to it. Here's another take on that is that he saw these pages come back with the Hulk appearing to fly and was like, nope, I'm taking this one on because <laughs> I want to make sure that we make it clear the Hulk is not flying. Yes. So let's go ahead and talk about the next comic we've got here, Journey into Mystery, number 86. And it says, after Journey into Mystery, it says, starring the mighty Thor. I'm not sure if we've had that before on the cover, but one way or the other. Thor is flying towards us, being pulled by Mjolnir, and he is saying, how can I defeat the Tomorrow Man when he can fade into a different year before I can reach him? And there's a phantom little flying saucer looking thing that he is flying right through as he does this. So yes. one of the things I was thinking as I was reading through this is, has anyone ever tried to tie this guy into the whole Kang Immortus pantheon before? I mean, I think he remains a different character, but this is clearly a dry run for Kang. You know, <laughs> so this is Zarko the Tomorrow Man, who is a good character who would return for later things, but he would basically also get rewritten as Kang, the basic idea here is that you've got a peaceful future that Kirby loves drawing where, you know, it's essentially the Jetsons in the future and, and everything is peaceful, but there's one person who is bad and who wants to be bad. You are, This is sort of all drawn from an old Dan Barry Flash Gordon comic, I think. Here in the future, we have no weapons, but I'm going to go back in the past and now I've invented a time machine and I'm going to steal some weapons. So yes, one could see how they could eventually just say, no, this is a variant. And now this is something that clearly Loki is being used to set up Kang, who is then going to be a character in the Ant-Man movies. But they could easily have set up that Zarko the Tomorrow Man was a variant on Kang, but I don't think they ever have. Now, um, one thing that actually just now occurred to me as I was looking at this, is this the first Marvel superhero book where we get the credits laid out as explicitly as we do here in this issue of Journey into Mystery. You are right. Wow. It says, I had not noticed this yet, but now, almost a year into Marvel, we have our first book where it says, Plot, Stan Lee, Script, Larry Lieber, Art, Jack Kirby, Inks, Dick Ayers. 
So the first time that Larry Lieber has gotten an official credit, the first time Dick Ayers has gotten official credit, although he's written his name on the pages in the past, this is a very big deal. We have our first real credits. Yes. So once again, we have absolutely gorgeous art of the future. Some of the same extreme angles that Jack was using in the last issue of Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. So Zarko decides to go into the past to get himself a nuclear weapon. Meanwhile, Thor is helping test nuclear weapons with the army and (laughs) testing something called the C-bomb. And then Zarko comes up, steals it, gets away. Then Thor, this is for the first time, tries to contact Odin in Asgard. We get a much more impressive appearance of Odin than we got in the last issue where we just saw the back of his head. He talks, he summons Odin, whose face appears in the clouds. He says, I ask of my father, Lord of Asgard, the power to journey into the future to the unknown from whence this metal comes. And Odin, then this, this is the first time we get the, uh, the, you get the whole idea of his hammer being able to actually time travel, which is not the last time we see this. So then he goes now, ahead. I, no- I notice that when he's traveling in time, all the little years that are listed there, most of them ha- are already in our past. Uh, <laughs> 20, 2086 is the only one we can actually read that is in our future. All the rest of them are in our past. Yes, he goes through the future, which is to say the years 1964, 1965, 1972, 1991, 2013, and then 2086. And Most of those years are in our past. I can tell you where I was in 1991 and 2013. I feel so old. And certainly (laughs) when I was reading these comics to my son, Jack, who will probably be alive in the year 2086, then I felt so old. So then (laughs) Thor arrives in the future. Thor then instantly recruits someone to be his confederate in a little scheme. He convinces that guy to dress up as Thor And then Thor follows while dressed in a black hood. Thor correctly suspected that then Thor would fall into a trap and land in a room of magnetized mirrors. But Thor's like, ha ha ha, that's not really Thor. It's that was some dude who I just convinced to dress up as me. So then Thor, of course, gets to fight a bunch of giant robots. He always gets to fight a bunch of giant robots. He defeats them. Zarko escapes with the C-bomb. Thor summons a big storm. The C-bomb comes loose and is falling, but Thor catches it. Then somehow in the crash, Zarko loses all his memory, which was a common way of ending these comics in the early days. Thor then said, and of course they have to make it clear. Right, and one of the medics says, but his memory will never return. It's like, you're just pulling him from the wreckage. You haven't done (laughs) any examination of this guy or testing or anything, but it's like, nope. His memory is never, well, I mean, granted, this guy had just turned himself into the dictator of the planet against everyone's will. It could just be like, yeah, his memory is never going to (laughs) return, if you know what I mean. And then, of course, it does. And so then we just very briefly see Jane Foster at the end of the issue. Thor comes back to the present, returns to the C-bomb, comes back to his office, where, of course, Jane Foster is thinking, oh, if only I could work for Thor instead of colorless Don Blake. (laughs) And then Don Blake does not respond to her in person. But once he is alone in his office, he seems to say out loud, I wonder if Jane will ever suspect that some of us read about the news while some of us are too busy making it. And he gives a little (laughs) smirk to the camera. (laughs) No, I I will also point out that Jane is now uh, a brunette. She uh, had had strawberry blonde hair in her first two appearances. She will remain uh, brown haired for the rest of the time that she is in these books. Now, well, she'll be Bond again at some point in the future. Oh, really? When she becomes Thor, she becomes Bond again. I think she's Bond again when she comes back in the early aughts. Oh, okay. Well, that's after my time, so I don't know. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, so I think this issue works. I think we've had Thor fighting aliens. We've had Thor fighting communists. We've had Thor fighting Loki. Obviously, it worked much better for him to fight Loki. But going to science fiction worlds would become another good source of Thor's stories. And he works well as a science fiction character. Of course, when they brought him to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he, they kept him as a science fiction character. They turned Asgard into an alien world, which is very much more sci-fi than it ever was in the comics. And I think, and of course, by the time they get to the third Thor movie, they've put him in the Planet Hulk storyline, which was an odd storyline to graft Thor into. But I think that they were seeing the, yeah, I think they sort of realized from the beginning that like, if we're going to try to fit Thor into the same universe as Iron Man, then we can't have him be such a magical character. We've got to have him be more of a science fiction character. And I think it works. Now, I, I, I actually will... I'm not sure if I agree on your whole thing about them turning it into much more of a... Turning Asgard into much more of a science fiction world in the movies than it was in the comics. There's a lot of science fiction-y looking stuff in Asgard in the comics. Um, and I, I think that that's something that was there. I mean, yes, they may have emphasized it slightly more or, you know, leaned into it narratively a little bit more to sort of, you know, make it seem more plausible to a modern audience. But that was largely there in the, uh, in the comics. It's funny. It was there. Kirby, I mean, Kirby was just insane. Kirby has just had <laughs> an insane imagination. His Asgard was a unique vision. It was sci-fi. It was fantasy. It was everything. It was nothing. It was something that no one else could have imagined. Later, certainly by the time Simonson is doing Thor, then it's very much not a science fiction world. It looks very much like a medieval fantasy world. That's a good point. Yeah. And, so it's, it's sort of wavered depending on who the creative team was at any given point. Very much. Okay. What are we doing next? I think we are doing Strange Tales next. Yes, Strange Tales, number 102. So on the cover, we have previews for the other two non-superhero stories that are in here, which we will dispense with. And at the bottom, it says, and another feature-length Human Torch epic, quote, Prisoner of the Wizard. The Torch is saying, he was waiting for me. I've fallen into the wizard's trap. And in the foreground, we see the wizard who... Once again, it's this sort of ugly, distended face. So then the issue begins, we begin with everybody is watching a black and white newsreel of the previous issue's events, which does date the book just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently newsreels were still a thing. I, I guess, yeah, I guess not everyone had a TV yet. I guess they were still used to doing newsreels. Uh, but yeah, that does sort of jump out at me a little bit. Well, I guess we have seen old newsreel footage of the Beatles when they first came to America, right? I mean, I guess so, so. Yeah, uh, I guess they overlapped. Okay, yeah. So, and so then one of the people watching this is the wizard, this extremely ugly dude. Everybody knows who the wizard is. They're like, hey, you know who he is? Holy cow, it's the wizard. It turns out that the wizard is the original tech bro. He yes. is... He, <laughs> He is a famous chess champion. He's a famous escape artist, but he also designed his own house. He says, only a superior intellect as I could have designed such an ultra-modern home, which Kirby appears to have based on the Pompidou Center in France. He is having fun with the modern design, says only the wizard could create furnishing and devices that are years ahead of their time. Inventions such as this air chair, the ultimate in comfortable seating, have brought me fame and fortune. 
So I, I just want to say, for, finally, you know, it's rare that you have these uh, scientific geniuses who actually use it to make money at various <laughs> points. So, you know, at least this guy did do that before then realizing, like, uh, making money is for suckers. I want to go ahead and show that I'm more powerful than superheroes. That's, well, that's, that's, where, the re- that's where the real stuff is at. Specifically, he says, yes, I have proven my mental superiority in countless ways. There is only one challenge left for me to defeat the Human Torch. That will be my ultimate achievement. And so it's like, why wait not a Mr. Fantastic? <laughs> why not Mr. Fantastic? <laughs> Your whole goal here is to prove that you're the most brilliant man on earth. So you're going to pit yourself against the brilliance of the human torch? Like, why not Bruce Banner? Why not Mr. Fantastic? Wouldn't that make so much more sense for you to pit yourself against his brilliance instead of the human torch, who is not at all famous for being intelligent? But because the human torch has his own book and Reed Richards doesn't, he will pit himself against the human torch. But of course we have the the first indication that maybe the wizard isn't as smart as he thinks he is. He (laughs) says, let's see. The first step is to find the human torch. Nobody knows his identity. Uh, right. Everybody knows his identity, Wizard. It's he lives with Sue Storm, who does not have a secret identity. He lives <laughs> with her in this town. It is the anybody with even a shred of intelligence can figure out his secret identity, Wizard. But since he can't figure it out, he says, I the only way to bring myself in contact with the human torch is to try to dig down to the center of the earth and fake it to make it appear that my digger has stalled out and that I'm suffocating. And then they will, of course, send the human torch to rescue me. Good thing they didn't send Thor. So then he... <laughs> no, I, I will say with this little atomic power drill that he's going to use to bore into the earth here, I one design detail on it that I absolutely love is that it's got these sort of little spindly tripod legs that it is standing up on as it starts the drilling. And then when you see the panel where it's then down the shaft, those spindly tripod legs have then folded up behind it. So they're still there, right? <laughs> but uh, I don't know I don't know why, but that little design detail uh, just really jumps out at me, and I love it. Yes. So then, uh, well, and then I should say, before he goes and rescues him, it, they do make it very clear, more clear than it was in the last issue, that he and Sue live in this suburban home together. It says yes. at that moment in the home of Johnny and Sue Storm, and then it has a little footnote, and it says Sue Storm, better known as the Invisible Girl, female member of the Fantastic Four. So they could not make it more clear that Johnny is living with his sister in this home, with, and she has no secret identity, but he does. So then... He rescues the wizard. The wizard invites him back to his Pompidou Center-like home and says, oh, I want to take a special three-dimensional photograph of you. But it turns out instead of being a three-dimensional camera, it is a bunch of foam jets. He, of course, in case the torch in foam, of course, puts him in an asbestos-lined room. Now, the torch can still cover his face in flames, which I guess is (laughs) in lieu of a mask. He keeps his head flaming at all times so that no one will know he's Johnny Storm. The wizard then gets his own flaming suit, which he then flies off, pretending to be the torch, commits all sorts of crimes. Just as in the most recent issue of the Fantastic Four, he frees some prisoners from a jail. He's going around. He flies. This is sort of like the old picture book sam and the firefly he flies in the sky and burns the letters down with law and order in the sky (laughs) just to make it clear to everybody the human torch is now a bad guy you know you're a bad guy if you're writing the words down with law and order in the sky and and that's after he just melted another statue oh no that's everybody everybody when they want to make the torch look bad they always pretend to be 
the torch melting down. Oh, I see. The blasted human torch even melted down our statue. In this case, well, it's not clear if there used to be a Civil War soldier on that statue. But, uh, <laughs> well, it, once again, it's probably, you know, if it's a Civil War soldier, it's probably a Union soldier because of where they are. But uh, also, I will point out that since this is supposed to be just the wizard who has a flaming suit with a little jetpack on it, he does seem to have a lot of control over flame outside of his body here. On uh, page 10, that first panel, he's setting up a toll gate of flame. And it's like, dude, you've got a suit with like gas jets on it and like a little rocket pack. Like, how are you? Sorry. Once again. (laughs) So then cut back to Johnny who burns so hard, he burns through the asbestos, burns out of the asbestos-lined room, finds the wizard, confronts the wizard, and the wizard says, I've got pictures of myself framing you, but I will burn them up and then no one will ever know. But then Johnny's like, oh, really? I can magically make them come out of your hand and come toward me. Says, look, I says, my will is stronger than the laws of physics and nature. I am all powerful. I have vanquished you, wizard. And then the wizard is like, oh, you're magic. I'm not. You're more powerful than I am. I'm going to turn myself into the police. So he turns himself into the police who pull him away. And Johnny reveals his secret trick. He had Sue just there, invisible, picking the pictures out of the wizard's hand and bringing them to him. So thanks to you, Sue. I'm sure grateful that you joined me after I phoned you. If you hadn't been around to take those pictures out of the wizard's hand, he would have burned them. Then I never would have been able to clear myself. He has cleverly outsmarted the wizard by the wizard forgetting he has an invisible sister. (laughs) Yeah, he's, you know, for them establishing at the beginning just how brilliant he is being a chess master and, you know, inventor and scientific theoretician and architect and all this sort of stuff, right after establishing all of that, they just go into, the the wizard is just a hapless fool. I mean, you know, (laughs) the, the thing is when he later forms the Frightful Four, the only reason he doesn't come across as more ridiculous is because Paste Pot Pete is in the group with him. So, uh, who we will see introduced, I think, in the next issue of Strange Tales. Anyway, it's going to be in the next couple of months. But yeah, so if, yeah, I think that's the only reason he had Paste Pot Pete in the Frightful Four was to make him look less ridiculous and dumb. But yeah, so the only thing that basically came out of this entire hapless series of Johnny Storm stories in Strange Tales was the wizard that the wizard would go on to become, he eventually graduated up to the main book and he would go on to become a major Fantastic Four villain and has been ever since. So here we get the one real contribution. The only reason anybody remembers that Johnny used to have his own series in Strange Tales is because of the wizard and to a lesser extent, Pastepot Pete, who would go on to become the trapster and would become an occasional sidekick of the wizard, but the wizard would be in more stories. And well, uh, but I mean, you're, you're really shortchanging Plant Man. I, was Plant Man, <laughs> did Plant Man come out of this? I'm pretty sure, yes. No, but I, I, I was just joking, though. You are not shortchanging Plant Man. <laughs> Plant Man is definitely forgettable and should be forgotten. <laughs> but Plant Although, Man would show up. Plant Man did oh, show yeah. up in later books. Oh, yeah, he showed up He's showed up in the X-Men at one point uh, a little while later as a lackey of Count Nefaria. Uh, yeah, no, he, he's, he still shows up, but I'm just saying that he's super-duper lame. I think uh, as, I think Asbestos Man is only ever in these comics. I think that Asbestos Man never shows up again after the series. I think he died of mesothelioma. <laughs> I think he did. <laughs> but, uh, so, but, but, so I think this is, the wizard is a good villain. It's great to have a tech bro villain long before there were a lot of tech bro villains. He has a memorable look, although his look would get more memorable later when he actually got an outfit. 
but I think that it is good to see some element of this book that actually lasted. So, yes, a book that makes a better case that the Human Torch will be able to sustain his own series. But I agree. This one did not come across as much like a Scooby-Doo adventure <laughs> like the previous one did. Okay, so that brings us to, are we down to our last issue we of the are. evening? Yes, Tales to Astonish. Tales to Astonish number 37, featuring the Ant-Man defying, quote, the unknown protector. And in the image below, we see a dude who's like all sort of bundled up. He's wearing goggles and looks like maybe a beret and a turtleneck that comes up over his nose and has a big old gun holster. And Ant-Man is catapulting himself <laughs> using his antipult, uh, which I just named right now, using his antipult to shoot himself at him. And he says, I'm flying into a trap. The protector was waiting for me. So, which, of course, he's just given away where his headquarters is right now by, you know. <laughs> which, course, correct me if I'm wrong, happen. does not happen in the issue. The protector does oh, no. not know where his headquarters no, are in the issue. No, no, but, absolutely not. So, I mean, last issue, we talked about how, last issue, which was plotted and scripted by Leo Lieber, we talked about how insane the whole concept of the antipult of the uh, little <laughs> gun poking out the side of his house that can shoot him out across town so he can land on a pile of ants. Apparently they were very proud of that little addition because it's on the cover now. <laughs> they have decided that this is cover worthy, the antipult. Honestly, in my opinion, the concept of this book started to fall apart when they started de-emphasizing things like the antipult. <laughs> it's, I mean, honestly, you know, and you've talked about how, you know, eventually Kirby would not be able to keep drawing every book that came out, especially as they came up with more and more. And so he would end up leaving the second tier books to go start other second tier books while continuing to draw the A tier books. But I really feel that the Ant-Man is one that needed his... I, I keep on trying to come up with other words that I can use here, but, you know, instead of insane nuts, bananas, you know, basically his uh, uh, gloriously imaginative spark to be able to make a ridiculous character like this work. And as long as he was there coming up with all these crazy little gadgets and crazy Rube Goldberg type situations in order to get the ants to do what he wants them to do, it worked. And then once it was handed off to other artists who were then, you know, largely in charge of the pacing and the storytelling, uh, I think it started to fall apart at that moment. I, I completely disagree. I think that this oh, really? book worked a lot better once the Wasp joined it. I think that once he could actually change size at will, and once the Wasp joined, this became a much more successful book. I agree that these early issues are enjoyably daffy, and, <laughs> and you do lose a little something when you lose some of the enjoyable daffiness, but I think that this was a book that did not work fundamentally until I think the Wasp joining it gave it the longevity it needed to last more years than it ever would have lasted. Perhaps so. And but, I, cer I certainly like the Wasp character, and she went on to be a great and integral character in the Marvel Universe. So uh, I, I will definitely grant you that, that that was a, a valuable thing that we got. But I do mourn the loss of, yes, and thank you, Daffy is another great word, <laughs> the, the deliriously giddily Daffy nature <laughs> of these early issues. So we begin with an elderly jeweler named Gerald Marsh who is staggering to his feet and police are coming and then ants see this answer telegraphing the news across town so then we cut to Henry Pym who is listening to his ants saying there's trouble at 523 Elm Street so once again he decides to shoot himself across town well, lands although, on an he, he has gas now oh wait let me see yes you're right 
he says, I'll just release my reducing gas. So we first saw the reducing gas actually show up in Fantastic Four, and now he has it. He's got reducing gas. It, I guess at the time, if you're just reading this, you could assume he got it from Reed Richards, but later they'll make it clear that Reed Richards got it from him. But yes, thankfully, instead of dousing himself in a liquid chemical, he is doing reducing <laughs> gas, which works a lot better. Hopefully. Although for some reason they then later go on to pills, which uh, I don't know. Why did they backtrack from gas to popping pills, which we'll get to later. Anyway. <laughs> and then finally it becomes just an inborn power. So yes. they, go through, they go through four different iterations here. So then he shoots himself across town, lands in an even huger pile of ants than he landed in last issue. Like a really horrifyingly <laughs> large pile of ants. <laughs> really horrifyingly large pile of ants. <laughs> this old man is saying that oh, this guy named the Protector, he beat me up, this giant man who came and beat me up and then disintegrated all my jewels. What can you do to protect me? And he's like, well, you know, I'm going to use my network of ants and I'm going to figure it out. And then he finds the Protector who is in another jewelry store and he is finding the Protector. And, and, the protector. and he's called the Protector just because all he does is run a protection racket. Yeah, he runs a protection right, right, racket. Right. So I, just, then, I, just wanted, I just wanted to make that clear for someone who isn't uh, following along in the book uh, uh, at hand. Yes, good point. He then sprays, but the protector is not without cunning himself. As he steps from the store, he sees a boy with a water pistol, and he says, just what I need. And then he shoots the water pistol, the boy's water pistol, at the Ant-Man, who is so weak he can be almost defeated by a water pistol. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is just so goofy. You know, it's like he gets, he's being, he's about to get uh, swept down into the sewer. He's like, oh no, hey, that lollipop stick, it's my only chance. And then gets the ants to carry the lollipop stick over. And it's like, there are grates on this drain that you're going through. Why is the lollipop stick any better than just grabbing onto one of the grates. I'm not quite sure what the deal is. It's, uh, once again, just so silly. And so then uh, Ant-Man, we then get to see for the first time the Ant-Man using his tiny little ant elevator as he goes back to, his, back to his headquarters. No, okay, but we see here that the protector, who's got this huge gun holster, does have actually have a disintegrating gun because we see him actually use the disintegrating gun on somebody's business. Yeah, I think they. That I think they, they, nine. I, I think they explain that away in narration uh, towards the end of the in the end of the thing. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, obviously, visually, he is actually using a disintegration gun there. But uh, I'm pretty sure that at the end of the issue, they explain. Oh no, it was all just a ruse. So a week later, the amazing scientist rents a jewelry store. That's all. That's all we need. Okay, yeah, sure. Like like one does. And then he says, sooner or later, he's bound to come around selling protection. And when he does, I'll be ready for him. The days pass slowly, futilely, until one afternoon. So he's actually literally running a jewelry store <laughs> for, like, multiple days. It seems like weeks. Uh, so I'm like, is he keeping inventory is he is he actually selling these things and keeping records <laughs> like what how is this? but once again you know we also have ant elevators so <laughs> you know it's just one of those things where it's like once again daffy okay so then sure enough the protector does show up at hank pym's rented jewelry store he does pull out his gigantic disintegration gun seemingly seemingly disintegrates his all his jewels and his shelf and you can see it's sort of there disintegrated and then Ant-Man, as soon as the protector leaves, Henry Pym rushes back to the back of the shop and changes his costume. Then he releases his fantastic reducing gas. And then it then he uses his ants to track down the protector. 
And he then, just as he was able to defeat Ant-Man with a water gun before, he is now able to defeat him with a vacuum cleaner. And he vacuums <laughs> up Ant-Man and his ants into a gigantic bag of dust. Or I should say, not a gigantic bag of dust. He vacuums up Ant-Man and the ants into a normal-sized bag of dust. Uh, <laughs> and then glues it shut so that Ant-Man is now glued into a vacuum cleaner bag. But he doesn't realize Ant-Man still has strength of a full-sized man. He butts himself out of the bag, then Ant-Man very cleverly waits until the protector peeks into the bag, uh, into the vacuum cleaner bag, and then Ant-Man has a fan, and he turns on the fan (laughs) and blows all the dust into the protector's face. Now, of course, they're about to make it clear that this would not work, but he's saying, my eyes, I can't see. Ah, 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 choo! (laughs) And then the police come in and say, don't worry, we have you covered. He says, the police, but how? How? Ah, Ah, choo! <laughs> we got your message, Ant-Man. Turns out Ant-Man had written in ants out on the sidewalk, <laughs> Ant-Man protector, vacant tenement, Evans Road. So then Ant-Man, then we reveal for the second time this month, he reveals that this seemingly giant person is actually a normal-sized person wearing a giant robotic exosuit. A so, very nicely designed robotic exosuit, by the way. I mean, that that is a... For a one-panel throwaway thing, the uh, the thought that was put into how this exosuit would look and work is... That's actually really stunning to me, that, you know, you would... Oh, yeah, we're just going to see it in one panel, and here, I'll go ahead. Oh, yeah, so then his feet would go here, and it's... And it actually looks like, okay, I can actually kind of buy that. Yeah, yeah, you can see... Yeah, you it, it works much better than... Oh, say the Ironmonger armor at the end of the Iron Man movie, which you cannot figure out where his actual feet are or where his actual hands are <laughs> in that suit. You're right. This one is actually, you're like, okay, I can see how this would actually work. So then not only do we have a repeat of a story from this very month's Hulk comic, where it turns out it's someone wearing a giant robot suit, but it turns out that the person who originally complained about the protection racket, it turns out that the protector is secretly Marsh the jeweler, the original person who brought to the cops' attention that there was this protector who was shaking people down. And he decided, of course, to shake himself down first in order to draw attention away from himself, which once was again, exactly the plot. I'm sorry, once again, it was a Scooby-Doo type plot. I'm sorry. Yes. Very much a Scooby-Doo type plot and was very much the plot of the last issue of Human Torch, uh, last month's yes. issue of Human Torch, where you had, once again, someone who was started out by threatening himself so that no one would ever suspect him. So we've got a plot that borrows from both last month's Human Torch and this month's Hulk, but is still a perfectly fine serviceable story. And Ant-Man runs off on his hand between people's feet, desperately trying to avoid them as he moments later his mission accomplished the astonishing ant-man is lost in the crowd i love that the cops are just aware that the ant-man keeps a stash of ants around the police department to be able to send the messages because you know the cop says when you sent the electronic message to the ants you keep alerted at our police station they (laughs) reacted perfectly it's like you know i i hope you don't have some sort of other infestation that you needed (laughs) you need an exterminator there for <laughs> in that last page, and once again, no, this makes no sense, but this is the text of the story. On pay on the last page of the story, in the panel that's in the very center, he says, You remember how it caught the how it, the gun, the disintegrator gun, caused a puff of dense smoke? 
Well, we didn't really see a puff of dense smoke. It says, well, under cover of that smoke, he stole the gems himself and dropped some grains of sand in their place. And, you know, you'll have no trouble finding the, quote, disintegrated gems in Marsh's safe. And now it's time for me to leave. Now, that does not explain why half the cabinet was disintegrated. But that's, you know, <laughs> but that's what he decided to say. So, so I, he I, has no disintegration gun. This This whole disintegration gun thing is a very elaborate hoax. Uh, that's what the words say. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what the pictures seem to say. Okay, so that was five issues. More commies, more, (laughs) uh, well, I would not quite more aliens, but certainly more commies posing as aliens. So it's, it's been a relatively representative month of early 60s Marvel. Aliens, commies, commies (laughs) pretending to be aliens. Okay, guys. (laughs) How about aliens pretending to be commies? We never get that. We will see. We've got lots more comics to cover. We'll be back next week. (laughs) Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.